0: Good morning, church. Uh, we're in John chapter 7 this morning, and uh, we'll be covering uh, a good chunk of this chapter, so I'll get right uh, right into it and start with verse 1 of uh, John chapter 7. Uh, I have to find it here. All right, verse 1 says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews." Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken. Are you angry with me, because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know that this man is where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, Whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him, and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard this crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, What is this that he has said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? I'd love to keep reading, but we should stop right there. Um, I appreciate sometimes reading a large section of scripture out loud like that, uh, with you with the church uh, knowing that when the word of God is spoken when the word of God is read it is powerful uh, it it's we've, we're given a promise that it will not return to the lord void it will accomplish that which it is set forth um, so now that we've we've read these these uh, mini verses uh, let's pray that our time studying some of them will be well spent Lord Jesus uh, we ask that your holy Spirit who inspired these words when John wrote them, would now bless your church with them so that we can serve you better, so that we can know you more, so we can love you um, better. We, we just ask your blessing on, on your church today and wherever this message is heard. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so John chapter 7 uh, begins and ends, really, with more division. Uh, we saw in chapter 6 how Jesus' ministry was causing... Um, causing more and more division. There was people leaving Jesus. There were people having more problems with the kinds of things that Jesus had said. And now this is happening even in Christ's own family. And it, it should be a, a welcome uh, piece of information, maybe not a surprise, but it should it should be a, a um, something that, that you're comfortable with to see that Jesus came from a very dysfunctional family. Because we like to be able to relate with Jesus whenever we can. And uh, you know, most of you know that I've taught from um, uh, a Christmas message a, a few times, in, in the genealogy of Matthew, in, in Matthew chapter one, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, and we we take a look in that in that study. We take a look at all the great. Failures in the family tree of Jesus Christ. There's liars and cheats and sinners and prostitutes and polygamists and murderers. There's there's even a you know a king who murders his own children. It's quite a list. It's a colorful family tree to be sure. But the drama, the family drama that fills the Old Testament and some of your Thanksgiving dinners, uh, you know, this extends also to Jesus's immediate family. That's why uh, that's what we see in John chapter seven. So in in John 7, verse 1 and 2, it says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Now while most of John's gospels, I've said before, it it concerns Jesus' ministry in the south, in Judea, for for this part, it it says that Jesus is ministering in Galilee, which is in the north, uh, because the people in the south wanted to kill him. And remember back in chapter 5, the leaders of the Jews had already decided to kill Jesus uh, on two counts, really. And, and one of them was that he healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus is going to mention this um, in, in John chapter 7. And they, then they really, really wanted to kill him because after healing on the Sabbath, he very clearly claims equality with God. So there, there was already a lot of people that wanted him dead. Um, and, and sometime during the events of chapter 6, John the Baptist is killed. We're not told that in John's gospel, but we see it in the parallel accounts. So Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, has been killed by King Herod. Jesus and John were clearly on the same team. John was killed for making a moral stand. Jesus is now targeted for his miracles. But Jesus is also in danger of offending political leaders because after he fed the 5,000, they wanted to force him to be their new king. This would make Jerusalem a a very touchy place place to be for Jesus. And, and we know this kind of claim to kingship would leave a mark on Jesus's reputation. Because yeah, even on the cross, what's the sign that they put above his head? It's Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So it was clear to Jesus and his disciples at this time that the political and the religious climate was threatening to say the least. And this makes keeping the feast a little bit tricky. Because in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, we read that this feast of tabernacles was one of the three annual feasts that was um, required. To, uh, the men of Israel were required to gather in one place and appear before the, be, appear before the Lord these three times a year. So it was the law, it was religious law for every man to come to Jerusalem for Passover, for the Day of Atonement, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus doesn't want to go with everyone else. He doesn't, he doesn't want to go because there are people at the feast that want to kill him. And if he's traveling with a group, he's going to be at the front. He's going to, people are going to know where he is. He's going to be uh, causing a stir, and he'll be easily targeted. But his brothers, Mary and Joseph's other kids, they say, go ahead, I'm sure it'll be fine. Just show up, do some miracles, and I'm sure everything will turn out just fine. Just read from verse 3 here. It says, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then in verse 5, it sort of provides the heart condition that produced these words. It says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. That explains why they said what they said. The heart condition was one of unbelief. Now the advice they give is worldly. It's carnal advice. They say you need a bigger platform, Jesus. Go to the capital. Buy some advertising. Now you don't have to buy it. Just do a miracle and the advertising will take care of itself. Don't stay here in the small towns. Go to the big city and make a show. Perform for the crowds, obviously, because you want people to know who you are. You know, if you play your cards right, Jesus, you can be the next big thing. Now, it it explains that they didn't believe him. So that kind of colors the the tone of voice that these these suggestions would have been said in. This advice and counsel is is from a place of unbelief. There is no faith here. And, And this idea that, God, if you would just do something big, something really, really cool, this is an idea that is consistently held by unbelievers and really we don't see the idea carried out into the uh, we don't want to see the idea carried out into the church by the people of God it was the people who ate at the feast with the bread and the fish in chapter 6 that said the next morning well show us a sign that we may believe and many times in Jesus's ministry people say the same kinds of things to him they say what sign will you perform that we may believe in you even from the cross after Jesus had done all the miracles that we read about in the Gospels, they say, come down if you are the Son of God. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. Now, that's an interesting phrase, Though an adulterous generation. This is something that Jesus says a few times in the Gospels. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. It means that it's a generation full of people who cheat on their spouse. Now, what's that about? Well, an adulterer is always looking away from what they have, towards what they think they want. The crowd ate their fill, and then they asked for something else, or more of the same. The attitude of seeking the next big thing comes not only from an unbelieving heart, but an adulterous one, from an unfaithful heart. Now, this attitude is present in unbelievers who are putting up walls, you know, people that we we meet now and, and that we read of in Scripture saying, well, I'll believe when... God has to prove himself. You know, but it's also present in believers who have a weak or misguided faith. Believers who have forgotten the power of the still small voice and who have begun to despise the day of small things, which were commanded not to do in Zechariah. You know, I've talked to believers who have uh, maybe a, a well-placed frustration with the delay of revival. They want revival and and you know the next big thing and they they're they're frustrated with the moral decline in societies and and they say and I, I've really heard this with my own ears that that if we could just get some miracles and some healings then things would turn around and the church would wake up and the world would see that Jesus is powerful and okay listen we we should all want those things in the right place in the right way we should want revival which is often accompanied by miracles and healings we see that in, in scripture and church history but we, we cannot afford to be so ignorant in our thinking that we would believe that a big platform a big uh, program a, a big performance a big miracle is the only way to get these these big results or the heart results that we're after Or to think that God only uses those kinds of things. Or to even think that those things work as far as the long term goes. That would be ignorant. The lesson of Israel in the wilderness is exactly that the big impressive show of strength doesn't necessarily work. doesn't have long term results. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's an unimpressive, quiet, private experience more often than not. What we see in the book of Acts is that the miracles were things that accompanied the word of God. And it was the simple, unimpressive, quiet things that the church was doing. Fellowship, breaking of bread, preaching the, continuing in the apostles' doctrine, praying together. These things resulted in signs and wonders and many being added to the church. The brothers of Jesus are displaying their ignorance of spiritual things, thinking that Jesus would be interested in collecting followers like a a campaigning politician. Does Jesus want followers? Yes. But consider how he gets them. Or consider what we've seen in John of how he, he appears to avoid getting them. In the last chapter, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And then a bunch of them leave and they never follow him again. So his brothers, they misunderstand spiritual things as many of us do, but they also reveal not just their ignorance, but their wickedness. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. Why didn't Jesus want to go with them to Jerusalem? Because his life was in danger. Christ's brothers were aware of his fame. they were aware of his controversy. John the Baptist was their cousin too, and he had just had his head cut off. And now they say, "Go ahead to Jerusalem." It, sounds, it says very clearly here that they did not believe in him, so they're not wanting him to go there and become famous. They didn't want him to be their Messiah. So why would they be talking like this? I think it's very reasonable to believe that the brothers of Jesus were hoping he would go down there, get into trouble, and the embarrassment of having this radical rabbi in the family would finally be over. Jesus' dysfunctional family. uh, You know, think about it. Jesus is his mom's favorite. Of course, Mary likes Jesus. Mary believes in Jesus. That surely caused some tension, I wouldn't doubt that it nearly tore the family apart, in fact. I've wondered if this could be one of the reasons Jesus, from the cross, entrusts his mother to the care of John. Even though Mary had other sons who should have cared for her, but they were unbelieving. The religious split in this family was very real, but it wasn't permanent. At least two of the brothers that we read about in this story become followers of Christ. They become Christians, and even leaders in the church. And the conversion of two of these brothers is one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection that I can think of, that I think we can observe. There are are two small books near the end of your New Testaments, James and Jude. Both of these letters were written by the brothers that are giving Jesus this bad advice, this wicked advice, here in John chapter 7. Those books were written by men who at one time hated Jesus and wanted him dead. But then after his death, went on to help build a movement that believed in a living, resurrected Savior. And both of them give their lives for this truth. So the day would come when Jesus' brothers would see him for who he is. In fact, after the resurrection, Jesus goes out of his way to reveal himself specifically to his unbelieving brothers, which is pretty cool when you compare it to what's going on here and how they're treating him. In our story, the brothers say, Go reveal yourself! Show everyone how great you are, Jesus. And he doesn't really do that. Not now. But after the resurrection, he goes to these brothers and says, Here I am. Now you can see how great I am. This is how great I am. But here in John, his time hadn't come yet. And Jesus said to them, My time has not come yet, but your time is always ready. This should remind you of another story. Um, Another story that we read in our study in John. At the wedding of Cana, His mother, Jesus' mother, comes to him and says that they're out of wine. And then one of the things that Jesus says to her is the same thing. My time has not yet come. What time is he talking about? He's saying that the time for my glory to be revealed is not yet. Mary was thinking a wedding would be a great place to announce to the whole world that you have come to save them. But it wasn't the time. His brothers cynically say, hey, Jerusalem, during a feast, that's a great place to announce to the world your power, your greatness. Oh, Jesus. But it it wasn't. The Jews believed that the Messiah would come with a somewhat spectacular show of force, and the resurrection was certainly spectacular, but resurrection has to be preceded by death. And the time for that had not yet come. Now, the word for time that Jesus uses here is kairos, and it, it sort of means opportunity the appointed time, or the the specific season. And the right time for the right thing is really the, the meaning behind this. And Jesus says, it's not my time, but it is your time. And he's really drawing a line between them and him, and saying, we're operating so differently here. We're working on two different things. We're working towards two different goals, really. We are of two different worlds because your time is right now. My time hasn't come yet. And this sentence is explaining, is it, or sorry, is explained by something he said in chapter 5. In John 5, 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Two different worlds. When someone comes and they work for themselves and they look out for number one and their whole existence seems to be an, uh, a kind of self-promotion, you know what? People understand that. They get it. We call their story a success story because they were successful in their selfishness. And it's, it's a lot of people, um, if it's a lot of people all trying to come in their own name, seeking their own, people admire their organization or perhaps even their noble cause of getting their own way. And we're totally okay with selfish leaders. I think every election has proved this. But when there is someone who is really and truly a servant of another person who comes into the situation to accomplish the goals of the one who sent them for the good of the one to whom they are sent, this person is a mystery and they will be disregarded. This person will be misunderstood. That's what Jesus said in John 5. If someone comes in his own name, you'll receive him. Because you understand selfishness. He's you speaking your language. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me because servanthood, submission, and humility are so foreign to you that you don't even want to be in the same room with it. And the same sort of thing is here in John 7. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Your time is always ready. Why? Because when you're on God's time, you wait until he says go. When you're on your own time, you take every moment available to you to, to promote yourself. You get to say go. Remember, time here, kairos, really means opportunity. So Jesus is saying, my opportunity to accomplish my goals, it it isn't here, it isn't now. Your opportunity to accomplish your selfish goals, it's always right there, available to you. The time for Jesus to show the world his glory and power through death and resurrection was not yet. It wasn't ready. But but the time for his brothers to reveal to the world their own natures, their own selfishness, their own sinfulness, well, that, that time will always be ready. Social media will bear this truth out. The time for self-promotion is now. The world will excel, accept self-exaltation at any time with open arms. But you know what the world doesn't like? Well, look, look at verse seven. It says, "The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. Now again, there are two different worlds. In this passage, the brothers of Jesus were operating in the spirit of the world. They would have been accepted because they would have agreed on the principles of morality that the world has put forth. What the current system condemned as sin, they would have condemned as sin. Probably things like Sabbath breaking and things like that. The things that the world upheld as good and righteous, they would have upheld as good and righteous. So he says, you go. You're not in any danger. You're going into a safe place where everyone agrees. I can't do that. Jesus doesn't fit in, does he? He called out sin when he saw it and made everyone uncomfortable about that. He saw evil for what it was, which made him a lot of enemies. Remember, Jesus is the one who says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Over and over and over again he says this. The line about it being, um, the line being drawn where Jesus says, On this side you have, obedience on this side you have, it's better to uh, have a, a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea, and that's the side of the line that you're on. You know, it's Jesus who talks like that. Of course he's going to make enemies. So in verse 8, it says, You go up to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things, he remained in Galilee. But, verse 10, says, When his brothers had gone up, when he also then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Jesus still went to the feast. Remember, it was part of the Mosaic Law that every adult man go to this feast, but he did not go openly. Now, usually for these big annual feasts, you'd travel with the family. You'd go in a big caravan. You'd make a thing of it. When Jesus was 12, this is how his family was traveling to Jerusalem, which is why his parents didn't know he was missing because they just figured, you know, he's camping with the neighbors and they're, they're just going together. This is typical, but this time Jesus doesn't go in the caravan. He goes alone. And it says, as it were in secret... It doesn't mean he's in disguise. He wasn't sneaking in bushes always looking behind him or something like that. Um, But he's, he's solitary. He goes to the feast, but he's not going with the crowd. It's not safe for him to do that anymore. Um, but it is a required feast by the Mosaic law. So he, he goes there, and then this causes some problems. Verse 11 says, The Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So there's much complaining because of him. What do you think they were complaining about? Well, some people were complaining that they couldn't find him because they wanted to arrest him and cause him some trouble. When John talks about the Jews here, he's not talking about everyone who is Jewish, which would include Jesus and his disciples. He's talking about the leaders of the Jews who had already decided back in chapter 5 to kill Jesus for healing on the Sabbath and making himself equal with God. In verse 11, it's the Jews who sought him, and it was for fear of the Jews that no one spoke openly of him. These are the leaders of the Jews. They complained because they couldn't catch him. But then there are other reasons to complain too. Remember the crowd that was there the Feast of Loaves and Fishes, the kind of people who would stop at nothing to find Jesus because they knew that he might make them a sandwich, those people would be complaining too because Jesus wasn't there to provide for them their wishes like a genie. And it was this same crowd that had tried to force Jesus to be their king. So there were people complaining about Jesus not submitting to their political whims and not defeating their enemies with fire from heaven and stuff like that. And then there would be those complaining you know, of, uh, with the, their arguments where, you know, where even those who said he was good were complaining to the people who didn't think it was good and vice versa and backwards. Now we're kind of skipping around here, but I want to read you from verse 25, um, that, to describe this divisiveness, which is really a central topic for this portion of John's gospel. Um, and verse 25 says, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? So they knew that there was a price on Jesus' head. But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing of him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Just keep reading here. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So you see that theme again. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me for where I am going and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now, this is a lot of arguments, isn't it? They're confused about everything he says. They're upset about everything he does. Jesus sure causes a lot of arguments. And it's telling, and it's worth noting that those who heard Jesus knew that You know, they they couldn't be neutral about this. And they knew that Jesus could not just be a neutral person. They knew he couldn't be a middle-of-the-road kind of guy. You had to either choose one or the other, white hat or black hat, good guy or bad guy. And, of course, there's the third option that people also threw in there. He's just crazy. He's just out of his mind. And you're you're familiar, I'm sure, with C.S. Lewis, uh, his argument in Mere Christianity, where he famously said that we must decide whether Jesus is liar, lunatic, or Lord. Uh, He is one of those things. He's a bad guy, or he's insane, or he's the good guy. And if he's the good guy of the story, if he is who he says he is, which a good guy would have to be honest about, then we have nothing left to do but worship him. You can imagine how divisive all this was. Well, you you probably don't have to imagine at all, because you have family and friends who have varying opinions and responses about Jesus. You know how divisive this is. Now at this time, opinions about Jesus could get you thrown out of the community. The religious leaders could see that you were properly shunned. Not just if you decided to follow Jesus, but even if you had positive opinions about what kind of guy he is. That's why we see here that no one spoke their opinion openly for fear of the Jews. They were afraid that they might have the wrong opinion and the thought police would condemn them. Now, I hope this gives you a good picture of the culture and society that Jesus spoke into. It was oppressive. It was uh, a culture that was rigid and closed-minded and controlling and and dangerous. The powers that be determined what was okay to think, what was okay to believe, and then Jesus shows up in this freshness and freedom of the gospel. It has always been and will always be a harsh thing for this kind of world. Jesus will be divisive. At times, he will be destructive. And it seems he will always be astonishing. In verse 14, it says, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Okay, even though it wasn't his time to come into the kingdom, it was his time to declare the kingdom that was coming. The kingdom that was among them. But this was God's timing, and it was public enough to avoid arrest, but he was teaching, and he He could control the message so as not to fall prey to the people wanting a political messiah. But when he teaches, people are surprised because he doesn't have the college degrees. <laughs> and interestingly enough, this will be a mystery about the apostles in Acts as well. Everyone is surprised that the apostles can speak so well with such boldness when they haven't had formal training. In Acts 4.13, it says it, Well, when it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That was their qualification. They'd been with Jesus. They realized that their ability to communicate was given, not from school, but directly from a master. And Jesus, in the same way, had not been to the rabbinical schools. He hadn't had a rabbi of his own. He had been a carpenter. But he's going to explain that he has authority from somewhere else. And before we read that portion, something that should be explained, when it says that Jesus didn't know his letters, that doesn't mean that he couldn't read. Uh, In fact, people like to assume that the Jews were like other ancient cultures with, you know, abysmally low literacy rates, but that that is not the case. That's not something we can accurately uh, imagine. It's likely that the Jewish people had higher literacy rates than most other cultures, including the Romans. Because since the time of Moses, Jews had been reading and writing. And at the time of Jesus, both boys and girls were sent to school to learn to read. And the Mishnah says children were taught to read the scriptures at age five. So that's not what it's talking about. They're not surprised that Jesus knows his ABCs. What they're saying is that Jesus did not have a formal education. and For them, that's a problem. There were no letters after his name. He didn't have his MDiv from a well-known seminary. So Jesus explains where he went to school. He explains where his authority is from. And and in the process, he gets to the heart of the problem, which is always going to be the problem of the heart. In verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no righteousness is in him. No unrighteousness is in him. You got that mistake way before I did. didn't make sense to me. Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, except to say that Jesus keeps saying this. Virtually every chance he gets in the Gospel of John, is the message that he was sent, that his authority is not from... Uh, himself, that he's a messenger from his father, this has been said many times already in John he's going to continue to say it through the rest of the gospel, his authority is from God it is God's authority that Jesus is fighting for and operating under and and preaching and in all of his preaching and in all of his living, Jesus has remained sinless and this stands in contrast to the ones he's addressing in verse 19 he says, Moses gave you the law but you can't keep it so you want to kill me? And this leads to the question he asks, why? Why do you want to kill me? Now to understand the flow of the argument, I think you really have to put the emphasis on that last word. Why do you seek to kill me? Because his his argument has been, I'm only teaching the words of God. And I've done so perfectly, keeping the law. I'm speaking the words of God. Moses gave you the words of God, and you didn't keep it. So really, who should be killed? Why am I suddenly the problem? There's a line between me and you, and on one side are all the righteous people who deserve to to live, and that's only me, and on the other side are all the sinful people deserving death. That's all of you. And if you're wanting to kill me, the one who's bringing just God's words, who do you really want to kill? It's God. But who really is deserving of death? It's everyone on the other side of that line. Which side of the line are you on? Unless you're God, that's the side of the line you're on. I'll tell you which side of the line you're on. You and I both are on the side of the guilty ones. We're with the accusers. We are on the side of the ones who won't stop at just giving God bad advice. Haven't you done that? like his brothers do at the beginning of the chapter. We don't stop at telling him where he's wrong. We don't even stop at breaking the laws that he, has, uh, that he sent. We're on the side of his accusers who would even become his murderers, even become the murderers of God. We're the ones who the Bible calls enemies of God. We're all on the same side of the line. And Jesus, the only sinless one, is on the other side of that line. We're all condemned by our actions and our intentions. We stand, he stands with the authority to judge and without any crime committed that can be judged. Now the message of the gospel has been called the great exchange. that We exchange our sin for his righteousness. We trade places. The judge steps over the line and is condemned. The sinners, the accusers, the murderers, you and I, are invited across the line. And in a lot of Christ's interaction with these people he doesn't engage as much as they'd like he doesn't give them the answer they want he doesn't give them the show the signs but instead he says I'll give you one sign it's the sign of Jonah that's the sign of resurrection three days in the grave three days in the whale and then life restored resurrection power that's the sign that he gives and it's through the cross and the empty tomb that that Jesus does engage with these people and reaches so far across the line that even the brothers that were giving him trouble in the first verses are brought over. They're bought over. They're reconciled. They're saved. He has reached over that line to you and to me. And we will live in this truth and rejoice in this truth and praise him for this truth of this great exchange. That in all this division, and all these arguments, and all these accusations, there's really one divide that matters, and it is the divide between God and man. And this is the divide that Christ has bridged. And he offers you and me a place on the other side of the line. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this sweet gospel. We thank you for the goodness, your goodness to us. Um, we, we pray, Lord, that the that your words that were read and and taught and heard today would sink deep into the hearts of the hearers, um, that we would grow more into the image of Christ now that we've been fed with this good word. pray that you would bless your church, bless our community in Jesus' name. Amen.